Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Acts 19, 23-41 About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in particular the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Artichaeus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple, of the great Artemis, and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So many people in the city of Ephesus, you see this in chapters 18 and 19, are turning to Jesus as Paul and the disciples are proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But as with the spread of the gospel, so too opposition comes in the form of spiritual attack. And in the first half of chapter 19, uh, that great fear comes upon the people of Ephesus and, uh, and many of them turn away from their dark arts 
And they set their scrolls on fire, and their, and their dark arts and their scrolls are what they were using to make, make money. They set them on fire, they turned to God, and chapter 19, verse 20, it says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So the disciples, God's people, were dependent upon the power of the Spirit to see this revival spread. But as with the spread of this revival in the city, opposition comes. So the context is set. Ephesus is undergoing a cultural shift. People are turning to Jesus. Scrolls and dark arts are being replaced by devotion to Jesus. And we're going to see that, that very soon this is going to have far-reaching consequences for Ephesus, not least economically and culturally. And we're going to see that, uh, that God's church is led to her deepest dependence on God, on him, not in times of comfort, but in times of persecution. You know, whenever, whenever the church confronts the culture and the standards of this world, rather than living in conformity to them, she, the church, is at her most potent. And you know, 2,000 years of church history can attest to this. It can attest with confidence that a persecuted church is an effective church. So is it a revival or a riot at, Ex or at, uh, at Ephesus? And the big idea today is that those who are led by the Spirit will face opposition as the gospel confronts sin and exposes idols. And we're going to see in today's passage that whenever we're led by the Spirit, we can, we can expect um, opposition and we will find strength in weakness and we can live above reproach. So whenever we're led by the Spirit, we can expect opposition. You know, at some point uh, across all cultures and all times, the kingly authority of Jesus is going to confront and clash with what's current and popular. That's what happened in Ephesus. That's what happens in Dublin. And it's no different. So Athens was the, the center of learning and philosophy. Corinth was a center of pleasure and promiscuity. But Ephesus had a, had a reputation for being a center of, of the learning and practice of dark arts. In other words, Ephesus were, was just super religious. The Ephesians were deeply religious. And we read in verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance among the way. And in verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, so we're introduced to this new guy, Demetrius has a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. And he keeps many craftsmen busy. So Demetrius is a silversmith. He makes his living by by creating and selling uh, idols, these small statues. And suddenly in the place of a couple of years, the cultural tide is beginning to turn. The people of Ephesus are turning away from idol worship. They're turning toward Christ. And so Demetrius comes to the craftsmen, he comes to the lads and he's saying, listen, these Christians are gonna run us out of business. If they keep doing what they're doing, they're gonna run us out of business and it's gonna hit our pocket. And so idol worship was a huge part of the, uh, of the Ephesian economy. Even if it's like a tourist attraction. You know, you, you, you go to some popular places around the world, they've, they've got little statues, they've got this, that, and the other. They, whatever, whatever you can think of, they will have it, and they'll have a price tag next to it. They'll try and sell it to you. So it's like a tourist attraction selling these little statues of the Greek goddess Artemis. And Artemis was known as a fertility goddess. And uh, as we see on the screen, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you might think of the, the, the wonders, seven wonders of the world now. You might think of Petra, uh, for example. Well, back in the ancient world, the, the temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders. Everyone knew about it. It was, it, it was magnificent. 
And Artemis was a goddess of fertility, as I said, and, uh, and also the earth and the moon and animals. It sounds like you name it, she was a goddess of it. And yet we've got these statues of Artemis. And you, you can see it on the screen, and, uh, and the Romans referred to her as Diana. And, and all these statues were covered in what looked to be breasts or bulls' testicles. I don't know which. It could be both. It could be either. But the, the, the big idea was that with her being the fertility god, and you've got a little statue of her, if you have that, then you will be fertile. The land will be fertile. You want to bring us into the 21st century? What, what's a word that would maybe associate better, perhaps, prosperity? Maybe you've got your, your little statue, you've got it. You'll be prosperous, the world will be prosperous, your land will be prosperous. So if they worshipped Artemis, they'd be fertile and their land would be fertile. And this fellow Paul is coming and he's, and, and, and he's proclaiming the gospel and Demetrius and the lads are saying, listen, Paul said that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. So it's, this is coming against what we're doing. And you know, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it rubs up against our idols as well. Never Paul proclaimed the gospel in Ephesus, it rubbed up against their idols. And it's the very same for us. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it rubs up against our idols. And Demetrius has a vested interest. At its root, the disturbance and the issue that Demetrius had was neither doctrinal nor was it a political battle, but rather it was economic. Look at how Demetrius portrays his concerns. Look, look what form they take. So in verse 27. He's got a vested interest. And it's disguised as local patriotism or disguised as religious zeal. But rather, there's a danger that not only will our trade lose its good name, so it's interesting, the good name of their trade, they're in danger of losing, but their prestige of the temple is going to be discredited. The majesty of their goddess Artemis is going to be robbed. It's a vested interest that is disguised as religious zeal. Really, Demetrius' interest is his pocket. I know it's interesting because opposition to the gospel are usually for reasons other than the content of the gospel. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, people's opposition against it is usually not against the content of the gospel, but rather the idols that are revealed, the deeper idols that, that grip our hearts. And so Demetrius and the lads are led by their pocket, not really concerned for the, the, the great goddess Diana. It's all a smokescreen. So the honor of Artemis was a smokescreen, actually, for their love of money. And, you know, we can see earlier in chapter 19 that, uh, that those who turned to Jesus actively destroyed the idols and actively destroyed the scrolls. They, they brought them to the disciples' feet and they burned them. And then burning them, it was a great cost to themselves because they found the one who was more precious than anything else. And so for three years, Paul proclaims the gospel in, in Ephesus, and he seeks to show how the gospel subverts the worldview that the Ephesians were caught up in. So Paul and the disciples sought to, so, sought to show the futility of the make-believe idol worship. And so as Paul presents the gospel, many turn to Christ because they find that Ephesus and all it had to offer could never satisfy because the people had deeper longings for salvation that only the good news of Jesus had the answer for. And so for us, whenever, whenever we are people who are led by the Spirit, we will recognize that, you know what, Christ is enough. He is enough for me. And if we recognize that Christ is enough, then it shifts how we think about money and possessions. And you know, Jesus had a huge amount to say about money and possessions. I think around 40% of his teaching in the Gospels, um, 
hit on money and possessions. And so I wonder, what, what is it that makes you squirm? What is it that makes you uneasy? You know, for, for Demetrius and his craftsmen, it was a potential drop in income. And, you know, from a purely pragmatic point of view, I get that. I can understand that. But you see, the love of money had gripped his heart. He cared not for the religious overtones of the culture of his day. And, uh, and you, you know what, I suppose Artemis was, was the goddess that, that, that was uh, revered. She was the goddess that was worshipped. Deep down in Demetrius and the lad's hearts, it wasn't Artemis in the slightest. It was their pocket. It was their money. His revealed religion wasn't the great goddess Artemis. It was actually his money. And maybe that's what makes you squirm. A great question that was asked of me in the past is, what is it, Maffey, that, that money gives you that you think that Jesus cannot? And so I wonder, what, what is it that you think money gives you that Christ can't? You know, whenever we're led by the Spirit, we can expect opposition. It will come. But we will find strength and weakness as well. So Demetrius has informed the craftsmen of the risk to their trade. They're furious. So they take it to the streets in protest. They're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. As the history tells us, that the street is, is the main thoroughfare that runs from the harbor to the amphitheater through the entire city. And it apparently is around 11 meters wide. It was covered in marble. And it's, it's basically a prettier version of our O'Connell Street. The city's in uproar. They seize Paul's traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. They drag them into the public view, drag them to the theater to challenge them. And it says in verse 31 that even some of the officials of the province, and look at these words, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Even though Paul had friends in high places, this was turning nasty really, really quickly. So it's getting out of hand. More and more people are joining in. It becomes a mob. Verse 32 says the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. And this is a mob mentality. If you shout loud enough, and if you shout long enough, and if you drum up enough support, and if you apply enough pressure, then the very thing that you disagree with or you don't like will get cancelled. And most of them didn't even know why they were there, because a crowd follows a crowd. You know, if lots of people are doing it, then I better also. You know, if this is what's popular, then I, I better not miss the boat. And you know, if enough people think this is right, then it must be right. This is a populist view. And you'd think I'm chatting about Ephesus. I'm actually chatting about Dublin. There's very little difference here. And so after ministering in Ephesus for a few years, Paul and the disciples see so many people's lives radically transformed. But yet now the Christians are finding themselves up against the wall. Their radical living is beginning to impact Ephesian society. And persecution comes. And the persecution gains traction through those who are following blindly. And it turns out that actually the Christians are those in the minority. You've got the mob that are trying to cancel them, maybe even put them to death, who knows. But Christians are in the minority. Followers of Jesus find themselves very much in the minority. And you know, whenever our lives begin to model upside down way of the kingdom of God, then the prevailing cultural idols are going to get exposed. And if they get exposed, then we can expect pushback. We can expect rejection. We can expect persecution. And how we face persecution is really different here in Ireland than it is in other places around the world. You look around here, you see see all these different flags. 
All these different flags represent different nations, different countries, but it also represents different ways that Christians are gonna be persecuted. You know, here in Dublin, we needn't fear having our heads hacked off. We needn't fear being imprisoned for following Jesus. There are other places in the world where if you're a follower of Jesus and you get caught, you maybe get your house broken into and you get dragged out down to the beach and stuck in front of a video camera and get your head hacked off on TV. And that's a reality for some Christians. We've got a very, very easy in comparison. But nevertheless, we still have a lower level persecution. And that will be inevitable if we were to follow Jesus here in Dublin. And for some of you, it might be the denial of a promotion. For others, it might mean being left out. And maybe for some of you, perhaps your family may distance themselves. Perhaps you've been brought up in a, in a, in a deeply religious or a, a Catholic family. And whenever they find out that you're actually now beginning to be, you're a follower of Jesus, you're an evangelical Christian, they look at you and they, and they turn to you and, oh, you're not one of us. And they distance themselves from you. Maybe you receive verbal attacks for not affirming and wearing the rainbow symbols, perhaps. How, does it, how do you feel to be in the minority? How would you feel to be spotlighted, potentially, for what you believe and persecuted as a result? Would you be anxious? Maybe, maybe terrified? Maybe nervous? Lonely, perhaps? I've felt lonely before. Or despairing, maybe? And do those you rub shoulders with know that you're a follower of Jesus? Because if they don't, then there's a problem here. And if they do, then at some point, at some point, you're going to come up against opposition. You know, Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote it, in, and in 1 Corinthians 52, he says to the Corinthians that he had fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, he doesn't go on to say what the wild beasts are. But this is what he's saying. He's fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. They've come under attack. And in the second letter to the Corinthians, he doesn't hold back again. You see it on the screen. This is what he says to the church in Corinth about his time in Asia. And, and, and this, Ephesus is part of this. For we do not want you to be unaware. For we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received a sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us. See them words? They're burdened excessively. They're beyond their strength. Do you ever hear the comforting words people might, might say to you? God will never give you something that, that you can't bear. That's not what this passage says. It felt like a death sentence. They despaired of life. It was beyond their strength. But look what it did. It pushed them to God. It pushed them on to God. Where will we set our hope whenever persecution comes? And whenever you find yourself in the minority, whenever you find yourself singled out, where will you set your hope? You know, this passage or this section uh, ends the very same way it begins. And the Jews now try to distance themselves from the Christians. And what do they do? Well, they thrust this guy called Alexander into the middle. Basically, Alexander is going to be the spokesperson. And he's going to say, listen, we're, we're Jews. We don't adhere to what they're saying. 
Just letting you know, we're not with them guys. And all of a sudden, the mob doesn't even care who, who Alexander is or who the Jews is. It's now both an anti-Christian and an anti-Jewish mob. And the Jews had nothing to even do with the, with the economic downturn. And the mob continued to chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for the next two hours. You know, there's something here about freedom of religion. It's not just Christians that are getting persecuted. It's also the Jews as well. And maybe if there's another sect, they'd get persecuted as well. The mob doesn't care who, uh, what, what religion you adhere to. The mob doesn't care in the slightest. They're, they're, they want to cancel you. And so Paul's strength lies in his weakness. Um, Aristarchus and Gaius know that their backs are against the wall, but their hope isn't set on themselves. Their weakness is, in fact, God's secret weapon. And so let's not set our hope in our own strength or in our own ability to, to persuade or even in our own watertight arguments. Maybe you're a great apologist and you've, you, you know your arguments inside out and, 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 and you love persuading and you love sharing the gospel with people. But I tell you this, whenever you come up against the mob, the mob won't want to hear it. The mob won't give you the opportunity to hear it. And so what are we going to set our, our hope on whenever we come up against the mob? And this is what Paul says. He says, God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and he will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. Paul sets his hope on God. And so as we consider what mission looks like here in Dublin, we must come to terms with the fact that, that there's been a cultural shift in the last 20, 30 years where um, Christianity is, is no longer seen as relevant, but not only is it no longer seen as relevant, it's in some parts of society it's even perceived to be dangerous. And so we mustn't assume that, that because we're Christians we're going to have, have a public voice, and because we're Christians that people will want to hear us. Rather, we're going to find ourselves pushed to the margins of society. But it's in the margins of society is where the church is going to be most effective. You want to see where Jesus was really effective is in the margins. Do you know who else is in the margins? Those who are rejected by society, those who are vulnerable, those who society throws out. You go to the margins and you'll find the rejects. But you also go to the margins and there's where you'll find Jesus. And there's hopefully where you're going to find this church. So as a church, we've got to move to the margins. We're being pushed to the margins by society. And that's no bad thing. It's when we, that we are at our weakest that we are most dependent upon God. And this must be our source of strength for whenever opposition comes. So how do we respond? How do we respond then whenever we find ourselves facing opposition in, in the cultural minority? No, whenever we're led by the Spirit, we can expect opposition, we will find strength and weakness, and we will, or we are, able to be above reproach. You know, we've witnessed to this point the craftsman's complaint and the crowd's confusion, and now we're going to come across this clerk and his clear thinking. And if you look at verse 35 with me, it says, The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. So the, the clerk appeals for calm to the crowd and he gives four really pragmatic reasons for them to find their chill. Firstly, he says the whole world knows of Artemis. 
The city of Ephesus is synonymous with her, so why are you so outraged by this minority? It poses no real danger. What's ironic, actually, is if you go and Google uh, Ephesus, all you'll see is a, is a broken down city, or not even a city, and you'll see a couple of pillars or columns left from the temple that no one really knows about or thinks about. No one wants to go to Ephesus because it doesn't even exist anymore. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere in Turkey. But yet the gospel has moved on. It's ironic. Secondly, Gaius and Aristarchus, they're, they're not guilty of robbing the temple, and they're not guilty of blasphemy. Thirdly, we've got legal procedures in place for a reason. So if you want to press charges, at least go about it the right way. Otherwise, we're going to have the Romans on their back, and that's not what they wanted. And then finally, verse 40, as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. And, and he goes on to say there is no reason for the riot in the slightest. And so the drama fizzles out. It's the end of the story. Such a weird way to finish off a passage. What is God doing here? And why has Luke included this account in such detail? You know, it, it seems to me that Luke is emphasizing that the Christians were able to spread the gospel without breaking the civic laws. And that actually the law could be depended upon to protect Christians from unfair treatment. So in Luke's estimation, the legal system, if it's properly administered, it could be relied upon to give Christians a fair trial, should it come to it. And you know, Paul writes in Romans 13 uh, to the church in Rome, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So Luke has shown that the Christians can proclaim and demonstrate the gospel in such a way that neither breaks the law nor opens them up to accusation. And the clerk's final statement basically says, listen, the Christians have done nothing wrong. And so we're called to live in such a way that is above reproach. And this is actually one of the prerequisites uh, for being an elder, and we're going to chat more about that next week. So whenever we're led by the Spirit, we can live in such a way that our words are backed up by our walk that our lives will reinforce not only what we believe, but what we also teach others. And so this way, the watching world will have nothing to accuse us of. It's a call to live winsome lives that demonstrate the beauty and the power of the gospel, which fulfills every longing and smashes every idol. You know, back in Acts 18, we heard last week, whenever Neil was speaking, about the Christians coming under attack from the Jews, and Gallio, who's a Roman senator, basically said, listen, this isn't something that infringes on Roman law. Sort the matter out among yourselves. And now this week we see the reasonableness of the city clerk. So both Gallio and the city clerk essentially provide protection for the Christians and it paves the way for the continued spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. And so neither of these men were Christians and they both will have had their vested interests but this is also a reason why we need Christians, why we need followers of Jesus in influential places. If you're a follower of Jesus and you know influential people and you're in an influential place, that's a good thing. We need Christians in influential places for the good of the city and for the glory of God and also for the protection of the freedom of religion, for the freedom of speech. It's both the Christians and the Jews that were canceled. Only a few years ago before the pandemic, the great atheist Richard Dawkins was coming to Dublin to, to speak in Trinity. And generally speaking, back in 2020 and 2019, it was the Christians being cancelled left, right and centre. Dawkins was cancelled. Atheist was cancelled. 
because what he was going to say was going to prove to be offensive to the Muslims. And so it's not only just Christians that are being cancelled, it's other people. But this is why we need Christians in influential places for the freedom of religion. But let me also say this, we cannot solely rely on the protection of the government. So this is a danger. Whenever we're, whenever we're under the protection of the government, that is great, but it can cause us to, to, to get compromised and become lazy and kind of just content with the status quo. And you know, we may have a legal protection that allows the spread of the gospel, but we must not become reliant on having legal protection for the spread of the gospel. Because the gospel confronts and it clashes with culture. And it doesn't sit in conformity with it. The underground church is exploding in China. And it's underground for a reason. You can't do this. You can't meet in primary schools. You can't meet in secondary schools. You meet in secret places and they move around from house to house. Because if they're caught, they're in trouble. You know, the moment the church came under the protection of the clerk, she was in more danger than when faced with a riot. And there may come a time, you know, whenever we no longer have the protection of the government, when we may no longer have the protection of the legal system, or even a time in which we may not be able to worship God in a secondary school, a time whenever, whenever society's disdain towards Christians turned to threats, and a time whenever, whenever threats turned to violence, but we remember Paul's words, we set our hope on Christ. And so as we look to Christ this afternoon, we remember that he was sent from heaven by his father to take upon himself the burden of our sin and shame. And he faced incredible opposition. Can I just invite the band back up again, please? John 1 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus faced extreme opposition, but yet he stayed the course he willingly went to the cross. You know, in Jesus' hour of need, whenever the mob came to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was arrested and he was taken away. He was beaten and he was bruised. He was mocked and he was scorned. He was spat upon and he was reviled and he did not speak. He received it. In the public square facing ridicule, Pontius Pilate could find in Jesus no wrong. He washed his hands off him. Here was a life that was lived above reproach. His own people conspired together to accuse him of blasphemy, but yet he did not retaliate. He did not retaliate. He was led by the Spirit, but he was also led like a sheep to the slaughter that you and I could have access in relationship to God the Father. You know, church, Jesus will never ask you to walk a path that he hasn't first ventured. Can I invite you to stand? We're going to look to Jesus. We're going to worship him. We're going to lift our voices. Jesus, I pray that you would make us bold enough to make our lives a, a, a rebuke to the system, to make this church stand out so that it may affect our world and affect our city economically, may affect our city religiously, politically, and socially for the glory of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a, a congregation and a church who act and live winsomely in such a way that we do not have to attack the, the prevailing idols in the culture, but rather we, 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 we show people the gospel, we turn them to Christ. And as they turn to Christ, may they burn their idols, may they burn those bridges. Jesus, we pray for those in Dublin who have these deeper longings for salvation, uh, who are th those who are filling, filling these longings with all the 
everything that the world has to offer. Father, I pray that as they, as they, they come and encounter the church, that they would come to encounter the good news that you have to offer. In Jesus' name, amen.